Welcome to episode 27 of the Tailoring Talk Show with me, your host, Roberto Rivilla. I'm a bespoke tailor, menswear designer, and owner of Roberto Rivilla London Suit and Shirt Makers. This is the podcast where you drop in for the threads but often leave with something quite unexpected. I talk to self-starters and creators about their journeys, the highs and lows and lessons they've learned along the way. If you haven't already, please support the show by subscribing and adding a rating and review if your podcast player allows. This really helps with those pesky search algorithms and helps us to grow this podcast. I'm joined this week all the way from New York, yes, the Big Apple, my second favourite city in the world after London, of course. My guest is a seasoned bass guitar player and music director. He's performed with over 50 rock and roll Hall of Fame inductees and in 12 Broadway shows. He's performed with a host of musical legends, including Sting, Elvis Costello, The Temptations, Ben E. King, Percy Sledge, the great Bo Diddley, Carlos Santana, and even you too, and many more. He's played Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center. On Broadway, he's performed in shows ranging from Rock of Ages, Spider-Man and Kinky Boots. He's been on television performing on the Conan O'Brien show and Craig Ferguson. If I keep going, we will never ever actually get to talk to the guy. He recently released his book, Memoir of a Working Class Rockstar. Ladies and gents, thank you for being with me as we welcome Ivan Funkboy Bodley to the Tailoring Talk Show. Ivan, how are you, my friend? I am exhausted just listening to that. Man, <laughs> I'm not sure I did all that stuff. Actually, I, I, yeah, I think I actually did. But over <laughs> time, it wasn't like a weekend. That was like a, that's a 30-year career you just encapsulated there. Exactly, and not even some of it. I mean, dude, I don't know how you've managed to cram what you've crammed. I, I don't know if you've ever had a wink of sleep in your entire life. It's incredible, <laughs> really. And speaking of which, like. Um, I, I think we were setting up this call this morning and I was not expecting you to be emailing me at four in the morning your time. It's crazy. But you were like, yeah, I'm up. I've just finished a gig. <laughs> I just finished three gigs yesterday, actually. Well, I, I should say two gigs and a, and a teaching. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, my day yesterday was nine to five. But that's nine a.m. to five a.m. Um, because that's just the way it bounces sometimes. You know, I, I, uh, I appeared on Broadway last night, subbing in the musical Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. And then oh, I wow. did a late, and then I did a late night gig, uh, one to four a.m. at the Red Lion on Bleecker Street, uh, which is like a funk band, a covers band that we do, which is all Prince and Sly and the Family Stone and James Brown covers. Uh, and that one's like, that used to be every Thursday, but now it's about once or twice a month kind of thing. So yeah, I got home and got your email and 4.30 in the morning, thought I would just uh, reply to you. Why not? Um, yeah, wow. I, uh, I, as I get older, I, I struggle to do anything these days past, <laughs> you know, to, I mean, to be honest, I, like my brain's always kind of going. So realistically, I guess I do not live on that much sleep. But I mean, wow, how you physically do it is, is just a wonder to me. Um, for anyone that's listening and wondering, so when I was awarded the Britlist Award a few years ago, Shortlist Magazine called me the rock and roll tailor. And Ivan is a rock and roll slash funk musician. And we both create things. I create clothes. Ivan creates music. And here Ivan is today on my show. So there you go. That's <laughs> as much as a link as I'm going to give you for now. Um, 
I so, also wear clothes too, so we're related in that way. He exactly. He also <laughs> wears clothes. Um, kind of dresses how I tend to dress in my spare time, but most people will know me for being in a three-piece suit, shirt and tie almost all the time. I have to say, though, I got this really awesome pair of boots, you know, kind of biker-style boots. Yeah, yeah. And that is my kind of normal, like, you can see my uh, ink and stuff. Um, that is my kind of normal, out- yeah, I've, okay, I'm, I'm far, I'm, I'm, I'm way, way behind you. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I have actually, I'm, I still wear a shirt and tie, it's what I'm, I'm known for, but um, I have started to dress from the ground up to make sure that yeah. I can wear these boots as much as I possibly can. Sure. They're so awesome. They're so. I, under- I understand that completely. 100% I understand that impulse. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I do tend to be in jeans quite uh, a lot more these days than, than before. Well, but I also blame it on the weather as well because it's pretty cold here. Although I'm guessing yeah, it's not yeah. as cold cold as it is out there right it got pretty chilly yesterday yeah it was in the 30s yesterday but uh and you know like you i was in a suit and tie why only yesterday you know because that's the that was the the costume for the job so that's what that's what we do as required we dress for the dress for the job yeah i hadn't thought about that but yeah you're absolutely right of course you're going to have diff- you're going to have jobs where you can't just kind of be in you know one of your skeleton skull kind of t-shirts and ripped jeans and stuff you're gonna be dressed up and especially when you're doing the kind of broadway stuff and and some of the clubs that you play as well right uh not the nightclub so much but uh i do a lot of function band work so when you're playing weddings funerals and bar mitzvahs it's often a black suit with a white shirt with a black tie that's kind of standard uh uh costume and then the broadway shows it depends whether the roles involve you being on stage or not that's when costuming is, is uh, being involved. I, I'm learning the book now, 15 years into the run. I'm finally learning the book for Jersey Boys. And that's going to be all, a black shirt, black suit, black tie, you know, all black kind of on stage. Because we are on stage for a certain member, uh, moment in the show, a couple moments in the show. Uh, last night, Ain't Too Proud, the Temptations musical, they do a, a pretty interesting thing the, uh, for the, it's a big reveal uh, at the end of the show for the finale the curtain call and the bows, the entire 16-piece orchestra is on stage. We're all wearing cream white suits, black shirts, cream ties. We're all playing white or black instruments, and we're all dancing choreography in in sync that we've had to learn for this show. So um, there's a costume, you know, designer, and we all have our own, you know, uh, uh, suits that we have to put on at intermission to sort of, you know, for the big reveal on stage when the, when the led wall goes up and there's a 16 piece orchestra in white suits, it's, it's a, it's a big impact moment in the show. You know? Yeah. I can imagine it's a complete sight to behold. How is yeah. it for you? I mean, do you, how does the costuming work for those shows? Um, do you, do, do you have someone that comes to fit you like someone like me, I would guess, or some kind of costume designer or whatever, because you need to be able to play in these things as well. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, a Broadway show, all of them have in-house costume, uh, not designers so much, but wardrobe uh, uh, chiefs that, that, that make sure, because the entire cast is constantly changing clothes for the whole thing. So in this situation, they've now extended it to include the band as well, because there's a huge onstage moment like that. So, yeah, you have to go in for a fitting. You get well-measured, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, 
length, breadth, and width. And then um, I, I'm a substitute musician, so I'm only there once or twice a month, kind of thing. But I, yeah. they, you know, because my dimensions are kind of uh, unique. <laughs> I'm six yeah, you're, foot five. You're, you're very tall. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I have my own designated substitute. Uh, cream white suit they probably don't use share that with anybody else i think you know and then there are other musicals that i've been like rock of ages that was an on-stage role but they dressed us up to look like 80s hair metal rock rock band dirtbags you know so <laughs> i had to take off my black t-shirt and put on their black t-shirt i had to take <laughs> off my black jeans and put on their black jeans you know that kind of thing uh that one wasn't a, a huge stretch Hedwig and the Angry Inch. There was a that was an onstage role as well. They kind of dressed me up to look like Joey Ramone, basically with the with the biker jacket, and a yeah. striped T-shirt, and aviator glasses, and kind of thing. So it depends on the show as to what. Uh, oh, I did the show once on this island too. I don't know if you ever heard about that one or saw no. that one, but it's it's set on a Caribbean island where that's just recently been uh, devastated by a hurricane. So <laughs> they had us. I was wearing. Um, uh, basically your clothes are sort of like, you know, ruined castaway items. I'm wearing like a shorts and t-shirts, but the t-shirt's distressed and it's got crap all over it and, and paint. And, you know, they, they made you to look up like, it looked like a refugee, a castaway or something, you know, and that was the, the costume. So it depends on the show. It depends on the set design, the costume design as to what, you know, how formal the thing is. You know, they really tried to dress this way, way down for that one you know, on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I bet. I uh, thank you so much for um, sending over your book, which is an incredible story, really. Um, oh, my pleasure. I'm glad you enjoyed it, man. And it is a literal roller coaster, but also it wasn't like a typical kind of musician type rock and roll memoir. There were right. so many lessons that I took from that, and anyone, I, I highly recommend it. We'll get into that later in in the in the episode, and I'll have all of the links um, in the show notes for people really have to check it out because anyone who's, especially people who are working for themselves and mm. we all go through, you know, the highs are high, the lows are really, can be really, really low and you don't hold anything back in there. Like this is the first time that you and I have met face to face, quote unquote, but I yeah. really, really feel like I got to know you through uh, your writing, like you write the way that you you're speaking to me right now, um, so I really really connected with it, and I it it got I'm getting emotional right now. It got me very emotional <laughs> at points as well. There's oh, so geez. many of your stories that you can relate to your own life, and so so much stuff that you've been through that you share, um, and and times that were really really hard for you, and you face so much rejection as a lot of people in performing arts do. Um, of course, yes. But you, you never, ever gave up. I mean, the fact you're sitting there talking to me from your... Is that the apartment that your bass it guitar is. bought? Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk <laughs> about that too. Um, but the book kind of opens with really, really nice testimonials from, I mean, so many famous people. It's crazy. But, yeah. I mean, Lady Miss Keir from D-Light, Gloria Gaynor... Yeah. Dude, I mean, you. There is a. There's a really great, funny little joke that you tell where you know you say Paul McCartney once told you never to drop names. Now, by the way, I don't actually know Paul McCartney. It's a joke. Um, but I mean, you could literally just name drop for an hour straight. 
Oh, I think I do in the book, don't I? It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I say that I'm not supposed to, and then I can immediately proceed to do exactly that. You know, oh, I know this person. I know that person. But, I, you know, in, in my defense, um, I, those are all people that I've worked with and encountered in life. So it's not, not like I, I'm sort of inflating my own ego so much that, you know, it's, it's all, it all happened. It's all, yeah. I have, I have the receipts <laughs> for all of it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, um, I guess if we go back to the beginning, so mm -hmm. you're originally from Tennessee, from a place yes. called, now forgive me if I've mispronounced it, Chattanooga. That's the one. Which I've never heard of. I've heard of Nashville, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of other places in Tennessee that I've actually heard of. You've heard of Memphis. Memphis, Tennessee. Yes, yeah, you have. Absolutely. Very famously in the song. And then... The, the next largest city is Knoxville, Tennessee, mm -hmm. and Chattanooga is the fourth largest city in, in uh, Tennessee. It's not, it's not a huge place. It's only 125,000 people or so when I grew up, but there are, some, there are some musical people and some legendary things that came from there. Uh, Bessie Smith, the blues singer, came from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Jimmy Blanton, who was the bass player for uh, Duke Ellington in the 40s, came from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Not very well known uh, outside of the bass world. Um, and then more famously, the Impressions. Uh, who went on to uh, move to Chicago and uh, went on to join up with Curtis Mayfield and had quite an illustrious career. You know, they originally came from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, it's also the home of the Moon Pie and the place where the tow truck was invented. So, and that is the entire pedigree of Chattanooga, Tennessee, <laughs> as far as I know it to this day. Yeah, well, I think just for the tow truck alone, we owe Chattanooga a huge debt, right? They have a tow truck museum there now, which you can go oh, and right. enjoy when you finally make it. <laughs> also, some very decisive battles from the American Civil War were fought there. So if you're a Civil War buff, it's a great place to to explore and see all the, the monuments and, and the history there. You know, But that, that yeah. war kind of ended badly. I don't know if you heard. It, it didn't go well, you know. <laughs> The side of righteousness came forth, thank God, but it was uh, it was very bloody and very you know, the 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 place where I grew up. Let's put it that way: they were on the wrong side of history, you know. So that's kind of the legacy I grew up sort of in the shadow of, and I was yeah. very happy to get out from under it, you know. Yeah, exactly. What it was like? What was it like as a child there? I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, is it your mum? Your mum was Jewish, and yeah. or your mum is Jewish, and your dad yeah. is the atheist. Yes, so I got that yes. the right way round because it yes. might—it wasn't immediately <laughs> obvious when you read that passage in the book. Yeah, but I kind of figured, well, he chose to when his mom and dad split split up. Ivan chooses to go live with his dad. Yeah, yeah, and his dad, being the atheist, was probably more suited to his kind of rock and roll music, <laughs> music artistic kind of tendencies. But I don't know if that—I mean—is that the reason why, or is it because? Mom not was, necessarily. Uh, uh, I, the passage you're talking to, I said, I'm, I'm the child of a, uh, a secular Jew and a devout atheist. You know, that's sort of the, the line that I give people when they start asking me about religious studies. And, and the thing is, because of that, we were sort of, my brother and I were kind of raised with no existential dilemma whatsoever. So, like, you know, the religious thing was never a question for me. You know, it's like, you know, do you believe in God? And I'm like, I, no, it's not an, it's not an issue. You know, so I focused on other things. Uh, choosing to live with my dad, I think just he was just kind of more of a supportive, um, supportive parental kind of force in general. Not that my mother wasn't, but I think he was more so. 
you know, and I think I recognized that earlier, sort of he was going to, he was going to nurture me to sort of become a more of a free spirit. And she was going to nurture me to become an extension of her life, mm. you know, which is, again, fine. You know, my brother and I both turned out fine in the end. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it just seemed like the move at the time. And I don't know as a 12 year old person how I, I recognize that, but I definitely made that choice and, and I'm, I'm happy I did. You know, it worked out. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, going through your your schooling and you know, kind of being threatened violently all the time is yeah, something yeah. that I totally related to because yeah, yeah. I grew up in a pretty rough neighbourhood, part of South mm-hmm. London. Yeah, and I was in one of the roughest schools. I think we were in the top ten most violent schools in the country at the time. There was Fantastic. actually. I mean, you know, when in national news there's an actual chart or ranking that's produced, yeah, you know that yeah. it's a pretty serious problem. Um, but for me, I don't know if similar for you, being, being, I guess, a, a, for all intents and purposes, a Jewish kid in Tennessee, because yeah, there well, wouldn't the, have been many people like you, right, around that time. That, that was definitely a minority view. I mean, the, the, the school I went to was not... Uh, not dangerous at all in in terms of that, in terms of like, you know, uh, uh, societally or neighborhood wise, you know, it was, it was very, very posh, but it was a uh, hundred kids in my class. There were two Jewish kids. I think there was one or two black kids in our school. Mm-hmm. So it's 98, 98% white Christian male and I just didn't fit that mold. I just didn't, you know, and I was they and they let me know it yeah. <laughs> all the time. So it, it kind of set me on a path to sort of like, sorry, all right, if that's what's happening, I'm going to go elsewhere and not, not try to sort of fit in. Because when you first get there, you want to fit in. You're just like, I want to yeah. sort of be a part of this. What, what are we wearing? What are we doing? You know, I, you know, what, how, who do we hang out with? And, and it was just immediately apparent to me that I was I was not welcome in that crowd. So, um, yeah, I kind of went my own way and. and it's fine, you know. Again, yeah. it it these these experiences shape us. They make us who we are. Uh, and, and again, in no way comparable to the school that you went to, but it it definitely set me on that path to sort of you know be my own person. I think. Yeah, I mean, my my school was basically. Um, I mean, you know, you had. I remember there was one kid in particular that you know brought a gun to school. You know, in Spanish class, he made a point of showing it to me. It was loaded as well because he, you know, unhooked the chamber. Of yeah. <laughs> you see, I don't know anything about guns. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, showed me that it was fully loaded and stuff. And, you know, it was I, I, I had a gun pulled on me in school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, that, and that kid didn't even get, he, he didn't. He didn't get into any serious trouble for it, right? Because None at all. the gun that he produced to give in to them was yeah. they confiscated a fake gun, right? But what he pulled on you was a real one. I, I, I it certainly looked real when he was looking down the business end of it, and what he gave mm-hmm. them was a BB gun. And I think I know the difference. You know what I mean? Like he's looking down the barrel of, of a something that shoots a, a pellet versus something that shoots a bullet. On, uh, but I was never able to verify it, and even so. Even so, even if it was a you know a fake gun, you know the way in which he used it was not fake at all, yeah. and there was there were yeah there was no repercussions in those days for that kid. He graduated the same as I did. We're all yeah. good. Well, you Great. know, I, 
I think the moral of the story is, is that it doesn't matter where you go, whether it's a great school or a rough school or whatever, is that kids yeah. have got the potential. Human beings do have the potential to be assholes. Yeah. <laughs> as much yeah. as they do also have the potential to be great. Um, That's right. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't, I, th I think you're the same as well, is that I've grown up kind of learning from those experiences and trying to use them in a way that is positive for me rather mm. than being angry about the way that I grew up um, because that just expends too much energy and I would much rather be someone who lives my life seeing the best in people no matter how bad they get right. um, than, than someone who's always suspicious or people or sees the worst in people because that's just well, an I exhausting way to live. <clears throat> It is, and, I, and I'll say two things about that. One, I when I meet somebody new, <clears throat> excuse me, I always give them the benefit of the doubt. Like when I have, sort of, you know, I'm almost, I treat everybody as a blank slate, and then until they sort of prove themselves otherwise, and sometimes that doesn't take very long at all. It takes a sentence or two. You're like, okay, no, I'm done with you. <clears throat> and then the other thing that I say, and this is this is a joke, but it's only halfway a joke. The the, way, the thing that social media, Facebook especially, Instagram, the thing that it's mostly good for is to make sure that the kids I went to high school know uh, that my life is better than theirs. <laughs> I just want to yeah. lead by, by examples like, oh, yeah, because I know that they all, you know, got desk jobs and uh, have had probably uh, bypass surgery by now or <laughs> whatever else. I just need to know that you just need them to know that my life is better than theirs. And then we're mission accomplished, you know. And again, I'm only I'm only halfway kidding with that, you know. Yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. Um, so um, so where did your start in music begin? It was kind of fitful and and kind of late. Uh, I you know, as a young person in elementary school, I sort of dabbled in some instruments. Uh, like viola and guitar and piano, but nothing really stuck. Nothing really sort of, uh, I think piano was the one that lasted the longest. I probably took piano lessons for a full six months or something, but nothing really stuck. I knew I was intensely interested in music because, you know, listening to music was kind of my refuge, um, especially when you feel completely ostracized by everyone around you. You know, you can kind of retreat to listening to uh, FM radio or, or albums that you got or whatever. And then... Uh, when I was 17 years old, that's when I first picked up the, the bass guitar. I was a, a senior in high school. So there was no music program at all in this, you know, very snooty, prestigious, you know, school that I went to, yeah. believe it or not. Um, they've since developed one, but at the time it was kind of, kind of on your own. So I had to find a guy who graduated a couple of years ahead of me and uh, he was a bass player and he had a, 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 he taught privately. So, you know, I started taking lessons for $15 a week you know and figuring things out on my own and and not sort of realizing that that was going to turn into a career at all so you know only having played for a year by the time you you go off to university you're in no way uh uh willing to make the commitment to like go to music school you know i went to engineering school first and i ended up like with a psychology degree in the end of it and then i didn't go to music school until much much later you know i already had like a a career in the music business and then gave that up and then went back to school kind of thing. So I came to it very late. And I think because the fact that I was mostly self-taught is sort of what kind of motivated me uh, to pursue it more. 
Yeah. Because I think if I'd have had all those, you know, high school band experience, whatever, the marching band or whatever is typical for people, I might have burned out earlier. It's possible. I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. There's um, <clears throat> a, there's a, a passage in the book where you talk about the, um, I don't know if it was your first ever visit to New York, but you were visiting your mom's yeah. family in New York right. City. And I think it's your aunt who was a producer. Um, you're right. My mother's family's from New York. So as, as such, we would come to visit probably maybe once a year as a kid growing up. And it's a lot of the reason why I moved here, because I always felt sort of comfortable here. We have mm. extended family here and I was familiar because I would see it. So <clears throat> my aunt, uh, she was not a producer, but a good friend of hers was a former publicist, I think ah, for okay. Warner Brothers Records. And she had an apartment full of vinyl. It was like wall, shelf after shelf, wall to wall, a vinyl, vinyl, vinyl. I'm like, what the heck? You know, how do you have all this vinyl? She said, oh, we get it all for free. Because in those days, you know, they would exchange the promotional copies of the records among the different uh, people at the label. And then, you know, because these were people that were promoting product and making phone calls and calling newspapers and radio stations and all this kind of stuff. So... They they had all those records, and she had, like, duplicate copies of things and gave me, like, a package of, like, 15 LPs of, like, hugely influential stuff. I, I'm trying to remember what it was, like, you know, Gang of Four and Devo and Elvis Costello, and, like, this was, like, mind-expanding to a kid, you know, wow. a kid in the 70s, you know. And then to realize that there was such a thing as free vinyl in the world. What is that? How do I get that? You know, like that's the business I want to be in when you get free records because I knew I loved going to the record store and just like going through the stacks we used to do, you know, like that was sort of like an afternoon off is going to the to the store to see what was new and see see what albums you were coveting this album and that album, you know. So that that probably as much as anything else led to a whole career in the music business it was like trying to collect free vinyl. <laughs> Yeah, because you you suddenly spotted an opportunity, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm just trying to trying to trying to just have a quick look at my notes here to make sure I don't get anything wrong. But I mean, you kind of realised I can't find them. You kind of, you realised that there all there was all this surplus vinyl flying around that you could right. get your hands on for free. Right, and it was they were sending it to the, all the local radio stations. So in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I decided like, well, they're getting free vinyl, and the top forty rock station plays. 40 songs because yeah. that's their format right so but they're getting pitched and sent all stuff beyond that and i know that they have like stacks and stacks of surplus vinyl surplus vinyl so i somehow got the hubris i don't know where i got this and i said i'm going to call the program director at the radio station and i'm going to offer him a service the service i'm offering is i'm going to take off your hands all of your old discarded vinyl that you don't want the stuff that you're not playing i'm going to provide you this service i don't know why i thought this was something that he needed but you know i'll i'll take this vinyl off your hands and shockingly the guy said okay yeah come on over and he gave me like you know my first trip was like maybe 100 lps you know so then what and it was 100 lps again that they weren't playing but it was stuff that was, you know, more new wave and more interesting and more punk rock, that stuff that I was into. But it also kind of gave me the skill. <clears throat> excuse me. I had to go through the, the I had to go through sort of audition them, you know. So, like, I, I'd see a bunch of labels of stuff that I didn't know. You could sell a bunch of stuff you didn't want immediately. You could throw those out and I'd go through and maybe weed out half of them. 
Then the rest of them, you kind of had to do needle drops on. You put them on and sort of like play a couple of seconds of this song, a couple of seconds of that song to sort of see what the band is, what the artistic vision is, what the sound is, you know, and see, is that something I'm interested in? So it kind of trained me in how to sort of like quickly understand what an artist was presenting and whether that was something that I found interesting or not. And that skill set served me later on when I became, you know, a radio programmer myself at, at university. And then also as I got into the music business after that, became a publicist, you know. Yeah. So it was sort of like un, unconscious early training about how do you sort of sort through a stack of vinyl to find, you know, the, the 20 pieces. If you've got 100 vinyl, you know, maybe the 20 pieces that you want to actually retain for the library. And then I don't remember what I did with the rest of it. I gave some of them to kids at school and <clears throat> probably tossed a bunch of them out. But this was an ongoing relationship with this radio programmer. Actually, a couple of them in town. Like, you know, every couple of months I would call him up and he'd go, yeah, yeah, come on, come on over. And it was just like, uh, it was mind-expanding, mind-blowing. Like, yeah. wow, I'm getting free vinyl, you know. Yeah, but, but at this stage, you, you still don't play any kind of instrument, right? You haven't that's settled right. on bass. You didn't play drums. You, I mean, <laughs> so that's right. You didn't own an instrument at this stage either. No, not at all. No, I, but again, I was intensely interested in music and recorded music, especially, obviously. So that sort of like formed the whole impetus to try to get into it. And then I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I remember a couple of key moments why the bass specifically started to speak to me, like seeing Rick James live on television was like, yeah, I want to do that, whatever that is. And there was another band from, from Atlanta called uh, Mother's Finest that were having uh, some, they had some pretty big hits in Europe and, and some big hits on sort of regional rock radio, although I seem to find people in the Northeast don't seem to know who they are these days as much as people, but everybody down South knew exactly who they were. It was a funk rock band from Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. So I remember seeing them in concert and going like, yes, I don't know what that is, but I definitely want to do that. You know, so that sort of the, having those kind of moments coupled with all of the, all of the vinyl collecting kind of made me decide, you know, I think my, my dad asked me what I wanted for my birthday, you know, my senior year in high school. I said, bass lessons. That's what I wanted. And I, I didn't have a bass. I didn't own a bass. So I started studying with my friend Rick, you know, who I'm friends with to this day. And he ended up selling me his used Fender Precision bass for $425. I still have the receipt. <laughs> That's missing a crucial small, I mean, crucial Go ahead. small part of the story, which is Go ahead. Where, where you got the money to pay for that bass. Because oh. your father didn't get that for you, <laughs> did he? No, no, no. I, I washed dishes for a whole summer at a dude ranch in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, <clears throat> it was called the Rainbow Trout Lodge. So, like, guests would pay to ride, ride horses and, and, and fish and, trout. And fish trout, right, in these stocked streams. It was like, it was like sh literally shooting fish in a barrel. They were throwing the fish in, and the, the customers were pulling the fish out. And I was washing dishes for 100 people for three meals a day, you know. <laughs> I don't. I don't even remember how I got this job. It was one of those <laughs> things where you see a listing in the back of a, a magazine or something, and it was a summer job. And I saved up all my dishwashing money and, <laughs> and bought a Fender bass for four hundred twenty-five dollars. Wow! So your father buys you music lessons with your friend yeah. Rick. Yeah, Rick. Now you've got your bass. Yeah, and Rick teaches you to play that thing by ear. So he, yes. you didn't learn to read music? You just Not learned... until much later. Much okay. later, yeah. 
yeah, so yeah. he was playing records for you and basically getting you to to learn the songs. Yes, just by and, listening and, sh- and playing and, and by demonstrating, showing me with his hands, like here's the pattern that you make for a C scale, and here's the pattern that you make for you know this song or that song. And it it developed my ear, but also I, again, I've taught bass lessons to people, uh, and you can see sort of you know by how they approach it, whether they're really motivated to kind of stick with it if they practice in between lessons. Like I've had students who, who the only time they play bass is the hour of week of the week that I'm with them. Yeah. The rest of the time they don't touch the instrument. Anything. They don't look at it. Right. And for whatever reason, I was very motivated. I was very into it. So I really was trying to like all the things that Rick was teaching me, I was learning, you know, and practicing and trying to master mm-hmm. it, trying to sort of, uh, I got in uh, into a band at, at my high school uh, within within six months, I think. You know, like I was, you get functional. A bass guitar, it's only four strings. You're only playing one note at a time. You can get functional playing Louie Louie pretty fast. Yeah. You know, it takes a lifetime to sort of master it, get good at it. But you know, you can get you can get into a band really fast, and and I did, and and it again led to this sort of performing at a talent show in high school we, you know this is a, a high school full of people who actively actively hated me you know so when you're on stage at the talent show and the band did very well we sounded great I actually heard some recordings of it not too long ago and we sounded really good for a high school band then you have a, a, a high school gymnasium full of people erupting into applause at something you've just done I'm like that's a, a shift from how they've been treating me my entire life, my entire career, perhaps I should pursue that, you know, as a means to being accepted by people. And that, that lesson sort of really resonated with me. It stayed with me to this day. Not that I'm sort of seeking acceptance anymore, you know, cause I don't really care what anybody thinks, but it, it, it definitely sets you on a path. You know, you realize like, Oh yeah, something, something different happens when you stand on stage and perform a piece of music it, it, it affects yeah. people emotionally you know in a palpable sort of way so i recognize yeah. that very early on yeah and you set some goals for yourself which again in the book you very honestly say i didn't achieve any of them but <laughs> setting those setting those goals and going for them yes. just helped you to experience and to achieve a whole bunch of other stuff yes Yes, I, I knew for a fact that I was going to play on the late night TV shows like David Letterman and The Tonight Show, Saturday Night Live. I was going to play at Madison Square Garden. Uh, this is my career goals, and I've done absolutely none of those things have happened. You know, a lot of other things have happened, but those <laughs> specific things, you know, I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to play on Saturday Night Live. Nope, never happened, you know. <laughs> and I was at Madison Square Garden the other day. But you know what? This is interesting. We can tie this all together. My friend Rick, who taught me how to play bass, he's now the advanced stage manager for this giant country artist named Luke Combs, who's now headlining arenas. He sold out two two nights at Madison Square Garden, and Rick took me on the tour of the rig, and I got to see underneath the stage and the guitar tech and all. You know, he even gave me a Luke Combs pick. Oh I have now. wow! So, my, so my I've... friend Rick. I've not heard of that guy, but I've kind yeah. of been um, getting into country music re- a lot recently. Weirdly, I yeah, don't know yeah, why. Yeah, but I'm like I've got stuff like Chris Stapleton. Sure. I have like a best of Chris Stapleton playlist on almost yeah. constant repeat. And there's another dude called 
Darren New Nuremberger. I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> Ghost Town, one of his yeah. like oh man, like yeah. awesome. Um, so uh, so yeah, but I'm gonna I, I need to check Luke. What's his name, Luke? Luke Combs, C O M S. Yes, yeah. Okay, I'm Luke gonna Combs. check. I'm gonna check him out. Yeah, I think you'll dig it. My further uh, country education. Uh, and to be honest with you, I'd only peripherally heard of him myself because I'm not, I'm not super well versed in the country music market, which is a completely different market, different genre. I definitely yeah, heard of him, but, you, but you're, you're called funk, you're called funk boy for a reason. Ivan. Yes, 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 yes. Of course. <laughs> you know, and I've, but I've played with some country stars, you know, but you know, when I heard he was, he was, my friend Rick was coming to town and I said, you know, where are you guys playing? It's like, Oh, Madison Square Garden. They sold out two nights. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> I didn't realize that he'd gotten to that level. And P.S., he's ending the arena tour this month, and next year he's going out. He's going to be headlining stadiums. This is talk, you know, sports wow. arenas. You know, when he comes to London, he'll be playing at Wembley Arena, you know, for oh 80,000 people. Uh, so Wembley Arena is because we live – you've been – I know you've been to – we will talk about London because – Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Some of your some of your terrible experiences in your career seem to like at least three or four have been in my country and sure I want to I want to talk about that but I also want to apologize to you as well for whatever aura it is that we have that when you cross the force field we we lose your guitar or you know um, you know give you some shitty accommodation or something. No, the guy that stole all that money from me in London was an American, so you you're safe there. (laughs) No worries. <laughs> so yeah, so where so where I live in northwest London, so we're in uh, Cricklewood, and uh, oh, yeah. you can. So we're not far from Wembley Stadium. You can see the arch from where we are. Nice, um, nice. Which on nights when there's a gig or when there's like I'm a football sh- game or something, they light the you arch hear it, up right? now. Yeah, you yeah. can. You, you can if it depends because but but sometimes if it's quiet, then yeah, yeah you can just especially on like FA Cup final day. Uh-huh. And also when the Foo Fighters played Wembley, because that was one of the <laughs> biggest crowds that, that I think they rammed about eighty thousand uh-huh. people. Wow! And uh, that was that was at that time. I think it was in two thousand and eight. The Foo's played Wembley because mm-hmm. that was when they were touring the um, Echo Silence, that- Patience and Grace. I right. Think. Okay. Sure. I yeah. think it was that album. But um, oh yeah, I mean, and we went we went to one of those nights and like yeah. literally just blew my head off. It was amazing. amazing. It was so good. They're one of my favorite bands. Um, and another great night was at the Brixton Academy. I don't know if yes. you've been there. Sure Such have. a great venue. So we saw yeah. Velvet Revolver. Mm, yeah, great. What was the name? Was it Scott Wheeland? Is it Scott Wheeland? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. So he sadly died a few years ago. Yes. But yeah. we were just lucky. So one of my ambitions in life was to see Slash do a solo. Mm. And I never got to see Guns N' Roses. I loved them right. as a teenager. And yeah. uh, so we saw Velvet Revolver at the Brixton Academy. Nice. And I think that's definitely up in my top three or four gigs in my life. Yeah. It Like, we came out. My ears were still ringing the next day. But Slash, he got into this, um, he, he got into a solo, yeah. and I'm like, I'm forward in my seat, because I'm like, this is, something ticked off the bucket list. Sure. But he went into a, tr- you've met him, right? I have not met him. I've been accused oh. of being him many times. Oh, but, okay. Uh, 
Now, we've not actually encountered each other in the person, in the flesh yet. You've, not yet. You've, you've met so many people. I kind of just yeah. in that second, you know, there was something in my brain saying, you idiot, don't say that because he hasn't met him. I'm like, no, I'm sure I saw a picture of Ivan with Slash in his, it's in his little kind possible, of collection. Well, yeah, yeah I, I figured the, the percentage probability was on my side and I just completely <laughs> screwed that one up. But yeah, so Slash, so Slash starts this solo, right? Yeah. About two minutes in, um, so the band leave the stage yeah. to let him get on with it. Sure. So now, so then, and we're, the whole he's got the audience eating out the palm of his hand. Absolutely right. amazing. And he, you know, he's doing all sorts of things with with his Les Paul that I could only dream of doing. You know, right. holding it above his head, behind his, you know, behind his head, <laughs> round his yeah. back, and so on. Anyway, we're about eight minutes in now. Wow. And he's just chain smoking. I don't even know how he was changing the cigarettes because <laughs> I don't even remember seeing it. And um, and then gradually, so Duff and the other band members gradually come on stage because they're getting ready to do the next number that he's meant. <clears throat> this solo is meant to lead into. Right. Sure. And I'm really sorry. Is it okay if I tell you this story? Because I don't really. Of course. Get to, I don't get to tell anybody this story. <laughs> um, <laughs> all, all my listeners are rolling their eyes right now. Um, so, so they all come back on stage and they're all getting ready. So they're taking their positions because he's meant yeah. to be leading into the next track. He just carries on. So then <laughs> now we're, now we're about 11 minutes in. Oh, wow. Can you imagine? That's a lot so, of stage time. That's a lot of time. So the band members all just start lighting up cigarettes. And this is after <laughs> we introduced the smoking band. <laughs> right. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, so totally rock and roll. And uh, but I mean, what do you what do you expect when you've got three original members of Guns N' Roses and you've got the lead singer of the Stone Temple Pilots in the building, right? I mean, yeah. they're not going to give two Fs. Um, so they all start chain smoking. He goes. He must have gone for about seventeen, eighteen minutes, and in the end, Duff had to go over to him and just break him out of it. <laughs> but it was incredible. We've got to get on with the show, mate. Yeah. Exactly, that's it. And speaking of getting on with the show, we need to get back to you. But I just wanted oh, to right. relay that. It was just, yeah, amazing. No, um, I appreciate that because I, 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 that's what it's all about, you know, having moments like that when you see these transcendent moments on stage. You know, it's, it's part of my career trying to get there on the stage side. And as a fan, too, I've seen those things as well. And you just kind of, they stay with you. They stay yeah. with you. And that's have there been what any makes music so powerful. Have there been any memorable, mo mo mem memorable <laughs> moments when you've been um, supporting bands that you've played with, where you've been on stage and, you know, the lead guitarist or whatever has just taken off? Oh, yeah. All the time. It happened last night. Oh, wow. <laughs> it goes all the time. You know, when people sort of get into the zone, and especially there's certain certain jobs you have more elbow room to do that you know some shows are very regimented and it's you know everything is verse chorus verse chorus and you're out you know there's, there's very little or the solo is going to be eight measures only and that's it you know some of these pop gigs are very tightly controlled mm -hmm. and then some of them like velvet revolver or like the gig i did last night with the with the funk band you know it's wide open so if a guitar player gets into his own he can be off, you know, like we're just playing a group behind him and he's going for as long as he feels like it. Yeah. You know, and occasionally we had a singer sit in last night. He was doing sort of a James Brown thing, sort of. A, no, he was doing James Brown. He was doing, you know, we were covering uh, a sex machine and, and uh, uh, 
<clears throat> a couple other things. And he was just going on and on and on. We finally had to sort of like tap him on the back, go like, "Hey, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta move on with the show. <laughs> you sound great. Thanks for sitting in. We gotta, we gotta go. You know, yeah. That happens quite a bit. You know, people get in the zone, and sometimes you appreciate it if, if you're, you know, if somebody like Slash is creating something magical, you just want to watch them. Like that's yeah. great. The I singer last night had overstayed his welcome, and we needed to tell him that. <laughs> 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 but that happens too, you know. Yeah, well, I can imagine. I did see a video with, with Slash once where he was kind of showing how he puts a solo together. Yeah. And the incredible thing is that he, I mean, I'm guessing he could probably just make it up on the spot, but he was explaining yeah. that most of his solo riffs are really very, very well rehearsed. And to yes. get to that, it, it, that speed doesn't, it's not a natural thing. It's something right. that he practices and practices and practices and practices, and then he gets faster and faster and faster and faster, just like my voice is right now. Um, and then eventually, that's where the kind of long-winded solo is born for him. Yeah, we all we all have a bag of tricks that we do, <clears throat> and these these riffs you're talking about are patterns that we use. You know, they become part of our vocabulary. So we all we all have them. we all have these these sort of core things that we can always default to that we can build up to, that we can go back on. Um, the thing that, you know, I, I, I ended up getting a jazz degree, you know, from Berkeley College of Music. Mm -hmm. So like yeah. studying with those guys, you know, the idea for solos kind of comes from the compositional idea where you sort of have, like, if you think about an old blues song, it's, it's, it's statement, statement, variation on the statement. So it's theme, theme, variation, theme, mm -hmm. A, A, B, you know, that kind of thing. So you kind of create your solos the same sort of way. You play a theme, repeat it and then do a variation on it and then going using that sort of thing you can really sort of give people something to hang their ears on and they'll go with you on a very long journey like you know like mr slash can do you know you can yeah. if you really structure these things in a way and even though you have a bag of tricks you know okay this pentatonic riff is going to work you know when i build up to this a little a little a little you know that kind of yeah. thing you know you can keep people with you you can really engage for a long period of time if you structure things like that you know and it, it, it pertains to so many things in life, but, you know, it's, it's specific to, you know, building an improvised, quote-unquote, musical solo. Yeah, and when you look at bands, like, we saw, the last gig we saw pre-pandemic was Muse. Mm. Um, and they were incredible live. Yeah. But again, what you were just describing there, they, they just take to the nth degree. I mean, their bag right. of tricks is enormous. Right. Um, <laughs> it helps. Yeah. But to, to play with that level of complexity, but mm -hmm. with also that precision, it's, yes. yeah, it's just mind-blowing to me. It's like, like, it's like building a, a vocabulary for language, you know, mm -hmm. like the more words that you can speak and the more syllables you can use in your words, you know, the, the smarter you're going to sound. Yeah. And it's the same thing with music, you know, like you have this vocabulary, and it's only built on the same 12 notes. We all have the same 12 notes on the mm -hmm. piano that we play. So how do you combine those and, and what patterns that you use to combine those sort of can make you sound like you know what you're doing or <laughs> or possibly that you don't, you know, yeah. depending on <laughs> how you've applied yourself. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so uh, you once played a gig where some billionaire in Mexico had you yeah. playing... <laughs> on what can only be described as a potential health and safety nightmare. Yes. Uh, and you called that chapter of the book, because it was an Acapulco, right? And you felt like yes. it was going to be catapulco. So it was catapulco. 
Have I Correct. got that right? You've got it exactly right. And and as you recall, I actually have a photo of it in the book because after I describe it, you're going like, I don't know, man. So I'm like, I brought the receipts. Here's the photo. Here's the stage. It was a stage that was built so that half of it was suspended in midair, about 40 feet above the street below. And it kind of had a, a 45 degree angle cantilever below it, holding the thing onto yeah. the side of the wall. And it just looked absolutely precarious but, but you guys had no idea right so you're so this no. some billionaire in mexico has basically yeah. got you know gloria Gaynor and yeah. band which you're part yes. of to play yes. at his house at some party yeah. and um and that was the other thing as well like he had a dj there that was playing techno and then yeah. all of a sudden you got gloria Gaynor you know, kind of where did the two things connect? They just don't, right? So It did not work out well. You know, like it was sort of like this party full of revelers who were kind of looking at this lovely older African-American lady who had a hit in the 70s and kind of scratching their heads like, when can we dance again? You know, like they're waiting the whole gig. They're waiting to hear I Will Survive. You know, the gig should have been 15 minutes long. She should have done like four of her biggest disco hits and got out. That would have been the, the right thing to program that party. But again, you know, the billionaire wanted to flex and show that he could afford this this wonderful entertainer from America with a 12-piece band and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, we were standing on this very precarious, kind of bouncy. The stage didn't feel yeah, like yeah. it was that super solid, you know, and performing this whole, like, I think probably did a 75-minute show or something to a group of people who were largely indifferent because they hadn't paid to see her. You know, they were they were just at this billionaire's party and they wanted to, you know, dance to the techno. Mm -hmm. Very odd evening. It was a very odd evening. <laughs> any um, any other memorable gigs for the wrong reasons? <laughs> oh, dozens. I mean, right. I only put a few well, in the We have to say, I'm asking, so you, I'm asking you this, Ivan, and what, what yeah. a lot of our listeners will not know is that you're probably pound for pound one of the busiest musicians in the world because how many gigs do you perform on average or have you performed on average a year over the last kind of dozen years? What, two, uh, 280, 320, somewhere in that range? Yeah, a year. The high, two, high 200s. Two, two, it went down a little bit because of the pandemic, you know, the, that hurt my averages. So my average probably dropped to 260 because of that. We, but yeah, over the well, last let's go, years. Let's go, let's go pre-pandemic average. Yeah. So forget, forget COVID. Two, 270, 280 a year. Yeah, it's like having wow. a five-day-a-week full-time job, yeah. you know, basically. Yeah. And then obviously you might have a few days off. And then, you know, like yesterday, you had three gigs in a 24-hour right. period. Correct. That is how it bounces. And you know, you, oh it's God. feast or famine. You, you can't really schedule it out unless you have a regular gig like working at a, on a Broadway or show something where you know you're going to be there eight, eight shows a week. Mm. But I've only ever had a chair on an off-Broadway production one time. Every time I, since then, I've been like a substitute. So you never know like the, the Temptations musical I did last night. I got the call two days ago. So you just, you just never know. It's very difficult yeah. to schedule your life around that. Yeah. Speaking of disasters and musicals, just to kind of bring it back to the question, so we never get we never got Spider Man on Broadway over here. Oh no, did you not? Oh, I, I, I think shame. because it it was so bad. Apparently, <laughs> you're going to tell me the truth in a minute because you were actually there. Uh, I was there. So the news that we got from the UK was that Spider Man yes. was so bad that it got kind of canned after a few weeks. <laughs> so what was, was the, that like? It was the most expensive. Broadway musical in history, uh, and it's probably the most infamous Broadway musical in history. 
Um, and the, the reason it was infamous is twofold. One, the, they had kind of two productions of it. There was a Spider-Man 1.0 and a Spider-Man 2.0. Like they, it was not going well. So they retooled the shop, rewrote it, rearranged it. This is all during previews. The thing, quote-unquote, previewed for like eight months or ten months or something ridiculous. Um, so it, it ended up actually being okay. I saw it one time from the house, and I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to see. You know, it wasn't like, you know, it was a comic book sort of thing, so it wasn't a very deep philosophical kind of musical. Uh, uh, and then the other thing was is there were some very infamous, very uh, unfortunate injuries that happened on set. And that's sort of what made the international news. Yeah. That's what you heard about, you know. Uh, and that that was that was too bad because, like, one of the guys that got hurt uh, was an aerialist, and his job is to hang from wires and trapezes. That's what he does for a living. And unfortunately, he got he got dropped from quite a great height, you know. And as he was falling through the air, he realized that he needed to not land on his back. And he had the wherewithal because he was an aerialist. So like he knew he needed to twist his body to land on his feet. He broke ten bones. Um, he was in the hospital, and he realized he was not paralyzed. So he he said, you know, as soon as I am out of here, <clears throat> I'm going immediately back to work. And he did, and he flew as a Spider-Man. He was the principal Spider-Man flyer every day. Yeah. His name was Christopher Tierney. His name is Christopher Tierney. Lovely guy. He's like this, the sweetest guy. You know, he was the first guy who sort of made me feel welcome when I went into that pit to sort of, you know, sub yeah. and, and be asked to do it. So it was one of those things where it was both beautiful and terrible to behold, you know, because it yeah. was, again, a giant spectacle. There were people flying above your head. You know, the music was all written by uh, Bono and the Edge. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it was interesting. It was really interesting. But, you know, as a as a theatrical business success story, not so much. Yeah, not I mean, so it, it's yeah. an ambitious thing to pull off. And, you know, we joke about it. But, I mean, obviously we joke about everything over in this country. But, you know, you look at the, the, the amount of effort that goes into producing a show like that, <clears throat> any yeah. piece of art, um, and the disappointment through the entire team, you know, from the musicians yeah. to the performers. I mean, that poor guy, you know, I mean, literally breaking his back for his art. Um, yeah. And then, you know, for that, because presumably you were booked for part of that show or for a full run? Well, again, I was one of the substitute musicians on bass, so uh, they would call me as needed whenever the regular player. In fact, this is a, a, a phenomenon with all the Broadway music, yeah. pit musicians, like, Almost every chair has five subs. So they can take off up to, because of the musician's union contract, they can take off up to 50% of the shows and still retain their chair. So if somebody has a touring gig, they can go tour, come back. You know, it's, it's kind of a great, great contract. So I was one of five substitute bass players. Uh, and actually, there are two bass players in the pit, believe it or not, because of some other uh, very long-winded stories that weren't very important. So I ended up doing probably 45 performances over there over the course of maybe two years, the last two years mm -hmm. of the run. So I was there quite a bit. I wasn't the regular guy, but uh, I felt very much a part of the Spider-Man family by the yeah. end of it, you know. Yeah, no, I bet. And how far in advance, when you're going to, let's call you second chair on mm -hmm. a musical, how far in advance do you get the music to actually learn? 
Uh, the way it typically works is sort of, sort of like when you when they've agreed to have you on as second chair, or in my case, fifth chair, whatever it is, you know, <laughs> they, they give you the music, they give you a show recording and or uh, often lately they give you a video of the conductor camera because, uh, you know, there's usually a, a, a live uh, video feed going with, with within the band these days. So uh, they give that to you and they say, call me when you're ready. Right. So, you know, that can be sometimes you have a date like uh, sometimes you're given a deadline like I need you by, you know, within two and a half weeks. That's the most extreme uh, uh, assignment I've ever gotten. Uh, but usually you have three weeks, a month, something like that. And when you're ready, you call them and then you, you, you go in. Yeah. Um, so one of um so I'm not going to talk about this right now. Uh, I want to just still skip back because um, there are some. I think if you look up the word "trier" in the dictionary, your picture would be there. There are lots of other words in the dictionary. Your picture would be next to you as well. <laughs> but again, you you do focus quite a lot on things that didn't happen for you. Right. Which, you know, which actually is not as kind of negative as you might think on the surface, because actually what it shows is that, you know, you that's exactly what you have to keep doing. I mean, that's how my business was built. Sure. You know, I, I probably have to get hundreds and hundreds of no's every week to yeah. be able to do some level of what I do. And it's been the same for you as well. But I mean, you've you've had some amazing gigs that you didn't actually get, right? Rod Stewart, oh, yeah. I Santana, I've lost some, some giant gigs. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't. You That's even take of... it a step further because you don't even you don't just list them. You actually yeah. then give an explanation of why you didn't get right. them. <laughs> right. 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 It, it, you know, it's the nature of any creative field. You know, there's a whole bunch of people who kind of want to do what we do. Whether it's you know designing clothes or playing bass on a, a concert stage, there's a whole bunch of people who want to do it, and there's a whole bunch of people who sort of you know there are very few kind of gatekeepers who are going to kind of give you the opportunity to be able to hire you to do some of this stuff. So you know just by the nature of the numbers, you know you're going to get rejection after rejection after rejection, and it, it's just part of it. You know it's not yeah. something you need to take personally. It's very often you know if you think about sort of casting a a, a a dramatic role you know there's mm -hmm. a there's a there's a personality type and or a look that they're looking for for the script you know and you may or may not fit that type and it's nothing personal you know they they need what happened with with rock of ages you know they needed somebody who looked like a, an 80s uh dirtbag musician and they looked at me and said you'll do <laughs> Come right over, you know. So that's you know, it was it was a time and place, and then I happened to have the the skill sets in place that they needed to perform that show. So it worked out. But yeah, if you're trying to pursue this, you know, you're gonna you're gonna fail way more than you're gonna succeed at this stuff. Yeah, and a lot of yeah. people on on I guess coming into the industry aren't prepared for that at all. Like nobody nobody sits them down and says, "Listen, kid." You're going to get so much rejection. It's going to be so hard. And yeah. you've really, yeah. really got yeah. to prepare yourself for that, you know, kind of still your stomach. And, you you know, you've got to be ready for a fight. Um, yeah. 
Cause, you can't uh, take it personally, even though sometimes it is very personal, and it's, it's you know occasionally it's it's hard to it, it, avoid it because it is personal. But yeah. most of the time it's not. It's just mm -hmm. like they're looking for something, a vibe, a look, a skill set that you may or may not be in the right place for at the right time. You know, yeah. Timing seems to be a, a common theme with with this kind of stuff Huge. because there's stuff that Huge. you've gone for before that you got, but then right. at the last minute they've cancelled you because. The yes. guy that you were meant to be stepping in for for some big band has suddenly, you know, recovered from whatever hangover he had or suddenly appeared because <laughs> he disappeared or whatever. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, it, you've got no control over that at all. But no. again, a lot of people will find it very, very difficult to cope with the roller coaster of emotions that comes with that, that you've got no control over it. You can be on a high one second because you think, great. I've got this gig, and then all of a right. sudden it's just snatched away from you. And it yeah. wasn't really because it wasn't because of anything that you did. That's right. That's yeah. right. Now it's happened. It's happened many times, countless times. Like you know, you've been promised some big things. Like you know, we're doing this, and you're the guy. You're in. You know, and then you find out the next day, like, oh, by the way, nope, sorry. You know. Yeah. You get and it. And it's it's. You get it in it's all walks of life. It, you know, you get it in, yeah. I mean, in my business as well, all the time. It'll be, sure. I'm going to, you know, I, I met this guy the other day and he's so-and-so and this will be a really, really good introduction for you because it's going to lead for big things and right. it's definitely nailed on. I'm going to hook you guys up and he's got to get on great. I've spoken about <laughs> and then yeah. nothing, nothing happens or, you know, you're due to, to, you're due to go and see someone and it's a big you know, it's a potentially big customer for me. And again, it's just taken away at the last second. And it's not really because of anything I did. It's just circumstance. Um, it, 100%. And you have to have high hopes and low expectations. And you have to have the will to keep putting one foot forward in front of the other. Yeah. From the very second that the worst thing happens, you can't let it knock the wind out of your sails. Yeah. you just got to say, if that's the... So there's something I learned very early on that an old boss taught me and, and he said, you know what you've got to do when you have a really, really bad thing happen to you or a bad day? You've just got to kind of look at it and say, hmm, if that's the worst thing that's going to happen to me today, I'm in pretty good shape. Right, right. That's a, that's a very wise way to look at things. I, I've had things, usually I'm able to move past it. I, I definitely have felt some very keen disappointment at a few things that I really, really wanted and didn't happen. Um, and there was one particular firing that I experienced that really shook my confidence badly. Like I, it, it, for some reason it resonated within me. I'm like, because it was a job that I had been successful at for about a year and then suddenly was, was let go kind of without mm -hmm. warning. And I was like, does that mean that I was, fooling myself for the entire year for my entire career do i really not know how to do this and i had some similar jobs in other areas you know that shook my confidence on those things that i'd been successful with on other gigs i mm. was suddenly questioning those like am, am i not doing something right you know can you just be like cut loose at at, at any moment and it's a very minority situation where something like that happens where it kind of just out of the blue you know you just kind of like cut loose for no particular warning or explanation but it does happen and it can be very you know it can lead to a lot of soul searching i'll put it that way yeah that's right i mean it's uh, you talk about feelings of low self-esteem when you were younger mm. 
and um, obviously that's a lot of that's not a thing anymore as you've grown up and matured and gone through all these experiences and become the wonderful person that you are today. But when you do have those, so can you can you can you shed any more light on the one that you just described as your worst knockback? <laughs> I don't know if that was the worst, but it was a bad yeah, the one. The one that uh, you really really wanted. <clears throat> oh, the one that I really really wanted. Um, there was an artist I was playing with. <clears throat> this is many many years ago when I was just sort of first getting to New York and first trying to be a part of the scene. And this is an artist that I knew from my record company days. I'd actually sort of worked with him. He, he actually was in a platinum rock band. Uh, and then he sort of left that band. He was on his own, and this is going to be his solo career. And I was in his band. And right. we were writing music together. The, the band was writing collectively. And we did our first big performance opening for another band at um, a big nightclub in Manhattan. Sold out show, packed to the rafters. And the show went okay wasn't great and it, it was it was it wasn't bad but it wasn't it wasn't the level of energy that he had been performing at for the last you know however many years of, of his career so in sort of doing the post-mortem analysis he decided that the problem was uh, i need to fire the bass player and i was like what based on what you know like we were poised to sign he was signed to a major label like we were going to record an album and it's gonna this is my ticket to ride you know to yeah. be in the industry and be at the platinum level you know rock and roll thing that i dreamed of my whole life and we did one gig and i got fired the next morning and i was just completely gobsmacked i didn't understand how you know how was i responsible for the lackluster performance, I was the only one on the stage who had been to music school. Like, it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me either, <clears throat> because when I played in bands when I was younger, um, if if we had a crappy gig or whatever, then the person we would fire first would be the drummer. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I, I would think so, but uh, the drummer was one of his, like, his buddies. So, you know, but, okay. what, what happened was I didn't understand at the time. Like, it, it made no sense to me, and it really was, like, this huge disappointment. Career-wise, personally, I knew mm. the guy, too. You know, like, it was it was something that was, like, having a, a dream yeah. in your grasp and then snatched away. But then what happened over the next several years or so is what I learned about this, this guy. It was, like, anytime something was going poorly, somebody else in the band was going to get fired. Okay, so he'd and never look in the mirror. He'd one, always look elsewhere turns out right. that's what happened yeah so like yeah. one by one the whole band got fired you're fired you're fired it took time but like i was just i just happened to be the first guy out the door like you know it was kind of a roll of the dice and it wasn't really any of our fault or maybe it was collectively all of our faults equally you know but yeah the, i guess the material wasn't strong enough and the band wasn't quite strong enough you know and it, i just happened to be the first one to get fired but because i didn't have no frame of reference on that you know i was completely knocked back on my heels by it you know yeah uh, and it came came to peace with it later sort of finding knowing what i knew later you know but at the time you're just like completely shattered by it yeah and uh yeah those those situations it can take a lot to pick you up off the floor but i think it, it gets easier with time because that obviously did happen when you were a lot younger yeah. And, you know, I guess these days you almost kind of shrug when stuff happens. I mean, the last thing that knocks me for, knocked me for six was when we just, our business got shut down last year because of you mm. and what. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was on my I was on my butt for six weeks. I've never been like that before. And yeah. then eventually I got my head out of the proverbial and you know started saying, well, people are still sure. wearing clothes. Yes, <laughs> yes. So right. that 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 hasn't stopped. Um, so you know what can we do? Right, and that, well, I think that's I, what you've got to. You, that's what you've always got to do when you get kind of not flat. You've got to just try and pick yourself up and dust yourself off and say, right, okay, well that happened. Yeah. Was it anything no, I did? You, no. You're, okay. you're right about that, and also it, you're you're right also that it does come with age and experience. Sort of these things are less catastrophic, but the one that I was alluding to two firings ago, <clears throat> that <laughs> happened more recently. That was within the last you know eight eight years or so. You know, so it's still possible. Yeah. It's still possible to really, you know, be knocked for a loop with these things. But it, it does happen less and less because I even said it in the book, you know, I've been fired so many times and I've also been hired to replace the guy who's been fired almost in equal measures. Yeah. So it's like it's a kind of, kind of like, perfect circle of life yeah, kind of thing going yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> it's the nature of the business. It's most of it's very hard to take personally. There was one artist that I'd worked, I've been fired from twice, and I'm, I'm hoping to get fired from again, you know, this sort of like a life goal for me to see if I can get fired a third time. But after I was fired the first time and had that experience, I got hired with a, a new band was put together to back up this artist. And when I came into the new band, I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. But I said, just understand something. You need to all know this. We're all going to be fired eventually yeah and they were like no come on man you don't know what you're talking about we got a new band we we really know what we're doing we're on our game i said "Eh." you guys don't know our cards are marked (laughs) mark my words and of that i think it was a 10-piece band you know there's there's one member remaining to this day like one by one we all went bing 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 like i told you that's what's gonna happen wow so um so one of my uh so one of my favorite movies favorite romantic comedies is The Wedding Singer. <laughs> oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. I, I love that film so much. There's um there's a there's a part in there where um where, she, uh, where Drew Barrymore's character she yeah. um she goes with a present of sheet music to him and he's kind of on his way out the door and basically kind of, you know, the sheet music goes flying around all over the place and it's because he's seen her with her fiance the night before, and it was all that kind of, you know, he got the wrong message, kind of seeing right, her right, so right. happy getting married through the through the window when what she was actually doing was kind of miming in her wedding dress what her name would be if she married him, and um, <laughs> I, I love that film so much, uh, particularly yeah. even though it's quite cheesy, the Billy, Billy Idol bit. Um, sure. When he comes, have you met him? Uh, I have not. I have not, but I know Damn. people that they've worked with him. Yeah. How am I striking out here? I've got. Anyway. <laughs> um, but he, so so yeah. One of my favorite lines from the film is like, uh, I mean, obviously when he does the kind of Madonna piss take where he says, you know, I'm, I'm just a material boy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> living in a material world, um, and you know, you like material shit, don't you? That's why you're marrying him, and uh, and then he also says. He also says, uh, there's a lot of money out there. I'm just trying to get my hands on some. Sure. Sure. <laughs> you know, which is kind of fair. Anyway, I don't know why I brought that up. Um, I know why I brought that up. <laughs> because you're sometimes a wedding singer. But it's oh. a really weird combination because you yeah. say weddings, funerals, and bar mitzvahs. Yes. 
Because yes. like weddings and bar mitzvahs, I get, but like, yes. what, what do you sing at weddings? Uh, funerals. Uh, funerals. Well, I mean, uh, that's that's a catchphrase that I, I I use all the time. Again, it's only halfway as a joke because people oh. say, you know, what are you working on now? I like, go uh, weddings, funerals, and bar mitzvahs, and they go funerals. It, it, yeah, it, it always invites <laughs> that response. But that said. We played memorial services. We absolutely have, you know. And I, I, my second home after I left Chattanooga was New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the brass band tradition, that's yeah. all funeral music. Yeah, you know. So they play funerals every day there. Like the the second line, that's a funeral marching line. You know, that whole joyous celebration of life. So that's a real thing. You know, yeah. not not as prevalent in New York City, but yeah, that's why I say weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs. Have you ever done a funk set at a funeral? Uh, me personally, no. But again, that New Orleans second line thing—that's a funk beat. You know, that's a whole sort of marching uh, funk tradition down there. So that's a thing. It is a thing. So, um, as well as promoting the book, and you have the podcast as well, right? I do. I do. Um, what else is happening at the moment? What have you got coming down the pipe? Hmm. Well. Again, weddings, funerals, and bar mitzvahs, you know, <laughs> playing, <laughs> playing a wedding tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Um, I'm subbing on Broadway at uh, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times yeah. of the Temptations. Uh, I'm learning the book over at Jersey Boys, the musical, which is all about yeah, the Yeah, that's right. So I was, um, uh, uh, so we saw Jersey Boys over here. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. It was about probably eight or nine years ago. What yeah, it's a fifteen-year-old show. Yeah, it's yeah. For a long what time. an incredible yeah. show, and what an incredible yeah. show for you to be part of. That's amazing. It's it ran on Broadway for I think I want to say ten years, and now it's continuing to run off Broadway. Uh, and it's <clears throat> a friend of mine has just taken over the bass chair, mm. and she needs subs. And I'm I've been a trusted sub for her for a long time now. You know. Um, so yeah, 15 years into the run, I'm finally learning the, the bass part, including the choreography, including the the haberdashery that we need to wear. You know, the black suit we're wearing on stage. So uh, I got that coming up. I got um, uh, a whole bunch of music that I recorded during the pandemic, uh, which has been sort of being released kind of piecemeal on a, a company called Color Red Music that it's run by the. Uh, Eddie from the new Master Sounds. Um, that's been very exciting, sort of releasing original music. Um, there's a big rock tour that may or may not happen next year, sort of depending on how things are going. Like you know, everybody's watching the tours that are out now to see are they are they operating, are they canceling shows, are they having breakthrough cases with the touring company. There's a whole bunch of things like that. So there's one in the wings that I can't quite talk about yet. But we're just sort of waiting for a phone call. Like it could happen any day now, and who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But yeah. I find that if I have, as a freelancer, this is an interesting point too. As a freelancer, if I have something like that on the horizon mm-hmm. to sort of look forward to, it'll sustain me through all the rest of the regular sort of workaday stuff. Yeah, uh, kind of gives me something to proverbially hang my hat on. Uh, and also I'm doing, you know, the, some of the concerts are back with some of the classic uh, rock and roll uh, and and classic soul artists that I work with. So I've been doing some concerts occasionally with Jay and the Americans, uh, recently with Little Anthony and the Imperials, uh, and some things like that. So it's a very disparate 
group of, of bookings that I have. And, but I am booked already. You know, I have at least weddings that I know about through the end of next year. So I, I feel like I have not job security, but I feel like, you know, I'll probably be able to get away with paying the mortgage for yet another calendar year. So yeah. Yeah. That, that's a big accomplishment as a freelancer, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. Um, you know, you, you, every day you get to live again is a blessing, yeah. right? Keep the, keep the lights on for another month. You're like, yep, that's a success. <laughs> exactly. But then you do say towards the end of, towards the, end of the book that, um, and, and obviously the reader gets this sentiment altogether, that through your storytelling, you definitely understand that you, sir, are not in it for the money because, uh. you know, you, <laughs> you, you haven't, you know, you, you haven't got that big, rich kind of rock and roll lifestyle where people are just right. throwing money at you all the time and so on. To this day, you are working so hard and you don't rely on catching just one kind of gig. You've always right. got things on the go to make sure that you're in work and you're providing for your family and so on as well. And that's, you know, that's testament to you. But and, and obviously we all need to pay the bills, but right. your your, right. your raison d'etre is is beyond that. It's not about masses of financial gain. It's about being right. happy in life and doing what you love doing, and obviously bringing joy to other people as well. Yeah, I think sort of you know looking at the at the back end of a thirty year career, clearly I must like it because I wouldn't have stuck with it for so long. Because again, with the the, the the hard work and the challenges and the disappointments, you know, if you didn't love some aspect of it, just, you know, you'd get out, you'd go get a real job, you, you know, go work in, in finance or, you know, law or medicine or something, you know, make some real money, go work on Wall Street, kind of make some real money. So clearly that's not been my, my uh, primary focus at all. Um, not to say that there aren't people that I know that have made a lot of money in the music business. It's possible uh, but it's unlikely, you yeah. know what I mean? So you ha you have to sort of be realistic about this. Like, you know, chances are you're not going to hit the lottery. You could. It's possible. But, you know, if you, you got to really enjoy playing. And, and, I, and I think that I have, you know, and I think that I do. Again, you know, playing for from one to four in the morning last night, as I do, you know, and it's a very low money gig. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not a, a high paying job at all. But for me, that's like, musically going to the gym mm. you know like yeah. it's it's a funk workout it's 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 like like rhythm calisthenics and the guys in the band are good enough that you can go in and really sort of enjoy playing we play for like two solid hours just non-stop you know full volume funk music and that i would do any day of the week i i love it it's, it's yeah. been great fun you know i uh it's one of the end quotes that really, really stuck with me. And I've actually got it printed on my wall opposite um, on my desk, along with a couple of others. Um, but it's, it's gone in my collection now. And if I may read it back to you, you, may. you know what it I'd is. I'd love to hear it. All I do is for naught. Even if one person finds enjoyment or solace from listening to me play, that's a good day. If I can accomplish that for my annual average of 228 gigs a calendar year, I will officially have had more good days than bad. And that's worth something, isn't it? Yeah. 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 That's how I feel. And, and that sort of, 
that moment came to me after, you know, I was playing in the house band at a jam session that I did, did every Monday night for a long time. And it was like three o'clock in the morning and there's two drunks at the bar. And I'm like <clears throat> wondering aloud to a friend of mine, uh, what are, you know, what are we doing? Is this like, is this worth it? You know, it's like, is this even a thing? Should we be even be here now? And this, this lady who I'd, uh, I just met at the time, she said, no, you got to understand that they, you're, you're creating a collective experience for these people. You know, even if it's a, a small number of people, you know, you're affecting people and you're, you're binding people together in, in a unifying experience. And it's important. On a community level, it's a, on a local level, on an extremely local level, that's a very important thing to do. Yes. You know, if you can do it on a mass scale, that's great too. But, you know, you can't discount. And you can think of, you know, examples in your own life growing up, you know, where you had somebody uh, who was a catalyst for, for good in your life. You know, it's, it's a very one-to-one kind of thing. So having that perspective dropped upon me was very important. It, it stayed with me, and it, it inspired me to write that that passage that you just read so kindly. Yeah, Jason Yap, who um, runs a he's a um, he's a music uh, dance director, sorry, and dancer, uh, based mm-hmm. out in Slovakia. Funnily enough, he's originally from Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Absolutely wonderful human being. And uh, I, I had the good fortune to spend some time with him, and we were just talk- We both got into podcasting around the same kind of time, and uh, he was saying that early on he was he was really worried and kind of focused on listening numbers and that sort of thing, and kind of almost got obsessed with it to the point where right. then kind of felt like you know, am I really enjoying this anymore? And we all kind mm-hmm. of we all feel like that, whatever we do. Um, but you know, his philosophy nowadays is that even if when he puts an episode out, he's, if one person listens to it and that one person gets something from it, or that one person gets some, the help that they need from that, then that one person was enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. And thank, I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface of your life. I feel like, uh, (laughs) You know, like I say, we've gone for about 90 minutes. We could go for days. Um, so hopefully we'll get to do this again. Um, Ivan, where can people find you online and how can they get hold of the book? Yes, funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net. Spelling counts. It's not funky boy. Some people think it's funky boy. It's not. It's, it's funk, funk boy. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and- and that uh, has links to uh, to, to Amazon. The, the book's available on Amazon. It's available directly through me for uh, domestic, I should say, U.S. shipping. International shipping is quite dear. So you might want to find it on Amazon UK if you're in the UK. Um, it's got links to all my social medias. All that stuff is there at funkboy.net. I can be found. I am findable. Exactly. And also, if anyone's <laughs> been thinking of taking up the bass and uh, has been looking for a teacher that is... Um... <laughs> Uh, that is uh, as nice as Ivan is. Um, Ivan also does teach um, online as well, so you don't have to be in New York. He'll teach you wherever you are in the world. And as we know, that's true. He his body clock doesn't function like a normal human being, so <laughs> time zones don't seem to matter. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, I have students that I, that I teach virtually as well as in person too. So yeah, happy to do that. I uh, I'm really good as a as a 
I find I'm more successful as an educator if you have questions. If you have specific questions, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. And then I can sort of explain to you how I've solved these sort of same musical kind of problems. Like, yeah. I, I really, I enjoy doing that. I think if I ever decide to pick up bass, then I would definitely have you teach me because I am the kind of student that asks a lot of <laughs> questions. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> you probably got that already, though. My uh, my Yamaha Auditorium acoustic um is sitting downstairs and it yeah yeah it had a we had a visitor to our home who i don't know what she was doing with it but she broke two of the strings and didn't tell me oh dear oh dear um so anyway i've got some i've got some new new sets of strings and that's 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 my christmas basically is to reconnect with that instrument yeah good Um, but yeah like you i i originally kind of picked it up because um, well, actually, it was my wedding. I kind of had this crazy idea that I said to my best friend, "I'm going to play, uh, I'm going to play two, if not three, of mine and Carolina's favorite Foo Fighter songs for her at the wedding. Oh, and nice, you're going to nice. sing them." And he looked at me <laughs> and he said, uh, "That's that's really nice and that's really romantic and that's such a grand yeah. gesture." There's only one problem. Yeah. And I was like, "What?" And he said, "You don't play guitar, dude." I was like, that's true i did play keyboard in college but yeah minor minor issue and so we're only about four or five weeks from the wedding and i buy this guitar and uh basically it lived on my back everywhere i went yeah so i imagine you're working you're you're you've got a tailor visiting you who's all dressed up in a suit and so on he's got a guitar strapped to his back because I would just practice, practice, practice every yes. second I got, and um, and yeah, I made it through. It, it all went oh, good. Well. <laughs> I'm glad there's a happy ending to that story. <laughs> but I kind of discovered the top E string because um, yeah. I was just kind of playing around with it because it's kind of it's, mm-hmm. you know obviously it's the bass string on a on a on a six string right. And uh, and all of a sudden, I was just suddenly playing the bass part to White Stripes, um, you know, Seven Nation, Nation Army. Army. Yeah, which is yes, very, yes. I mean, you're probably laughing because it's dead easy for you. But <laughs> I was I was like, oh my god, I'm a rock god. This is so cool. I'm going to start learning bass guitar. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how it happens, you know. Yeah. I, I I learned on a bass. Uh, a fellow that, in the, that lived in the dormitories at my high school had it, it had two. It only had two strings on it. Two mm-hmm. of the strings were broken. They were gone. But I only need two strings to to pick out a couple of melodies. You know, the I don't. I could have. Yeah, I could have done Seven Nation Army on that bass, but it hadn't been written yet. You know, but that was the kind of thing. Like by ear, you sort of p- start to pull out these lines and. Yeah, that's how it starts, man. You got to be careful. Yeah, no, exactly. No, I, I have the bug. It's just, yeah, COVID and work have just really got in the way of everything. Just trying to survive the last eighteen months, but I yeah. need to. I need to bring that. That I need to bring music back into my life. Um, so that's. I need to get next week out of the way. Then I got two weeks off, and me and the, me and that Yamaha are reconnecting yeah. big time. Good. Good. Um, Ivan, thank you so, so much, really. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for, again, just allowing me to sort of delve a little bit more into to, to some of those fascinating stories. And again, there are literally hundreds and hundreds that we have not even touched on. So I hope we might be able to kind of get into some of that at some point in the future. And thank you. Love to. And thank you so much for all the life lessons that you've shared and inspired as well um 
I feel like having read your memoirs that I, I just feel like I'm a better person for it mm. because of what you've shared. So thank you so, so much for that. And I'll make sure that I have all of your links in the show notes for, for you guys and girls at home. Have you had fun? I've had a blast. It's been great meeting you. And, and really, that's, that's the nicest thing that anybody's ever said about this, this book. So it, it means so much to me that you've actually read it and actually enjoyed it and, and got something from it. Because that was the idea. You know, I'm trying to share life experiences with people. I'm not trying to, to uh, uh, tell people how to live you know, but I'm trying to sort of show by example that there's there's a lot of strange things that, that and good things that can can come from adversity. You know, if you sort of like move that into something that you make work for yourself and as a positive experience. So, the fact that you came away from that with that idea is very meaningful to me. So I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for joining me, Ivan. And thank you for joining us on this episode. What an incredible story. And as I've said, we didn't even scratch the surface of Ivan's incredible journey and life experiences. So if you want to find out more, please go grab his book. I will put the link in the show notes for you. That's it for this episode. Thank you once again for joining us. As I said at the top of the show, please remember to subscribe and review. You can also click the share button in your player to send the show on to people you know too. If you do buy Ivan's book, please make sure that you review and share that as well. Um, It's, again, you'll get so much from it. And if you do, make sure that you review it and you share it with your friends and family because you'll be helping them too. Um, We're entering the busy Christmas period at Revilla London, so we're probably due at least one more episode before the holidays to round off season three. Make sure you don't miss a thing by hitting that subscribe button, and I'll see you on the next one. 